0: By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com/disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information.
1: Hello, and a very warm welcome to Focus on Finance, our new podcast series where we examine the forces shaping the credit of banks, insurance companies, and asset managers. I'm your host, Danielle Reed, coming to you from New York. In today's episode, Carolyn Henson in London will talk to Laura Baser of the insurance team in New York about the results of a survey the team did on the post-coronavirus future of global life insurance companies' operations. Carolyn, post-pandemic, there's been a bit of a sudden shock to the way life insurance companies do business, hasn't there?
2: Yes, there certainly has. Globally, the common thread among life insurance has been technology, because with the lockdowns that happened because of COVID, operations were forced online, and it meant a rapid shift to digital-only
1: processes, from sales through to underwriting, claims handling, the lot. That's quite a change for an industry that's traditionally been lagging quite a bit on the technology front and dependent on slower in-person processes like medical exams for underwriting. I'm looking forward to hearing more about that later on. But first I'd like to welcome James Eck of the insurance team in New York here to talk about a change in the outlook for global reinsurance. James, welcome to Focus on Finance.
0: Thanks, Danielle. Glad to be here.
1: James, you've just announced a change to a negative outlook for the global reinsurance industry. What are the main factors driving the change?
0: We changed the outlook to negative because the operating environment for reinsurers is extremely challenging despite prices improving. There's a lot of uncertainty regarding how the effects of the coronavirus pandemic will play out, and that could impact both sides of the balance sheets for reinsurers. There's also historically low interest rates, lower reserve releases, and higher retrocessional reinsurance costs, which is reinsurance on reinsurance, and these will all hit profitability. We also think the return of social inflation's impact on casualty lines and the effect of climate change on catastrophe event frequency are also longer-term challenges for the sector.
1: No, social inflation is just litigation against insurance companies.
0: That's correct. And particularly in the United States, we've seen jury verdicts becoming larger. The plaintiff's bar has been very active. And we've generally seen uh, losses increasing on casualty lines significantly. So, so companies would have to take additional loss reserve charges to uh, cover the impact of these higher losses.
1: Okay, well, well let's take your main drivers in turn starting with the coronavirus. You've said the effects of the coronavirus are difficult to estimate. Why is this, and what concrete effects have we seen so far?
0: That's a great question. So this is really a slow-rolling, ongoing global catastrophe event, and it's impacting many different business lines and is very widespread. There's also the economic impact, and the, the second quarter was the worst quarter for global economic activity since World War II. And we think there are still significant downside risks to the economic recovery. A lot will really depend on what happens with efforts to contain the virus. But there's also a number of unresolved insurance coverage issues, that is, issues about what will be covered and what won't be covered under insurance policies. This is where the business interruption claims from the economic shutdowns come into play. And we think there's going to be years of contentious litigation uh, sorting that out. So far, reinsurance losses have primarily come from event cancellation policies, property policies that do include business interruption, travel insurance, accident and health insurance, as well as mortality claims on the life reinsurance side. So ultimately, you know, the losses are going to get quite large. And, and Swiss Re estimates that the pandemic could ultimately lead to total insured losses of up to $80 billion, which would make this one of the largest insured loss events in, in history. So we think uh, additional losses are likely to continue to come in for an extended period of time. But again, much will depend on how quickly the virus can be contained and how global economies eventually recover.
1: Now, what about the increase in natural catastrophes on top of all that? That, that would be largely hurricane damage, for example, or wildfires uh, in addition, correct?
0: That's right. And so, you know, in the past several years... Catastrophe losses have been have been elevated, but what what the trend is, what the data shows, is that catastrophe event frequency has really increased significantly over the past fifty years, and a lot of this is due to the the effects of climate change and increased global temperatures and rising sea levels, just uh, creating more events and more severe events, and and that has also led to much higher insured losses over time as insured property values have risen in areas that are susceptible to these types of events.
1: And then finally, there is the problem of low rates, which is a persistent ongoing problem. Is that mainly an issue because of investments? It depresses returns on reinsurers' portfolios of, of investments?
0: That's correct. So interest rates were already heading lower prior to the pandemic, but have really come down uh, over the past several months. And for a typical diversified reinsurer, the running book yields on their fixed income portfolios are down around 100 basis points compared to a year ago. This hurts returns on equity by around 1.5 to 2 percentage points.
1: Now, on the positive side, I understand pricing has been improving, but maybe the, the issue is there that it just hasn't increased enough to overcome the higher losses and lower returns. What would have to change... Before the outlook for the reinsurance sector could go back to stable,
0: that's a great question and and really, while we have seen pricing increasing, it's still well below uh, the levels where it was in twenty twelve But we really think the the factors contributing to the negative outlook this year will keep pricing momentum moving into next year and perhaps even into 2022. The extent of the price hardening will depend on how much additional capital comes into the market to take advantage of this better pricing, which could ultimately put a cap uh, on the price increases. In terms of returning to a stable outlook, we'll need to see sustainable progress uh, by reinsurers toward earning more appropriate returns for the volatility that they're assuming. But if the sector can stay disciplined and improve its underwriting results and overall levels of profitability, we'd be more constructive on the outlook for the sector.
1: James, thank you so much for being here and for your insights on the global reinsurance sector. Joining us now from London is Carolyn Henson, who will be talking to Laura Bazer in New York about how the pandemic has affected global life insurers in some ways for the better in terms of the company's operations. Carolyn, over to you and Laura.
2: Thanks, Danielle and Laura. Welcome to Focus on Finance. Glad to be here, Carolyn. So Laura, you sent some questions out to uh, about 40 of our rated life insurance companies to find out how their operations had changed since the start of the pandemic, right? What did you ask them about more specifically?
3: Well, the survey basically looked at how life insurers' operations have fared during the shutdown. And how they see their business evolving after the pandemic is really behind us in terms of things like workplace, sales, distribution, underwriting, and so forth. We, we received a lot of very good and detailed responses on how insurers managed during um, even the most difficult weeks of the pandemic and what they've learned from the experience.
2: And technology seemed to be the common theme in the answers for these global companies.
3: That's right, um responses you know were clearly focused on the regional dynamics, but technology came up again and again in all of the responses and and it really started with the uh, physical move um, that companies made from their offices to employees' homes. I mean if you can imagine entire workforces were suddenly forced to work from home from one week to the next it's interesting we we had a uh, conversation with one insurance executive who told us that if his uh, staff had had to plan for it it would have probably taken a year and instead they did it in you know weeks and and, uh, and days and you know it's suffice it to say that the transition was largely a success which doesn't mean that it was an easy move certain back office functions and call centers in certain parts of the world were offline in the early weeks of the pandemic and uh, paper-intensive businesses have fared probably less well. But you know, recent in- investments in technology did make working from home possible on a large scale globally, so that's a good thing. In fact, things have worked so well um, for some companies that they're likely to use working from home more extensively in the future, even um, when we all return to the offices. This is a big step in the industry's digitization efforts and it'll be a real uh, savings on cost, particularly for real estate if uh, downsizing happens uh, over time. But it also points to certain risks, and the biggest one would be cyber risk of working from home, given you're in an unmonitored and uncontrolled environment. We've all heard about uh, cyber attacks on you know video conferences, and we've all had the occasional problem ourselves with Wi-Fi or a, or a work laptop or cell phone that's malfunctioning. And so you can imagine what the, you know, what kind of risk that poses to a company if they got 4,000, you know, 5,000 employees all working from home.
2: So aside from um, the sudden shift to working from home, what about other areas of their business? I mean, like sales, for example.
3: Well, um, many insurers had already initiated direct-to-consumer sales prior to the pandemic. This This is where people can buy insurance online or through the mail, but without an agent. And companies told us that given the shutdown, virtual sales rose significantly. And with mortality rising from the pandemic, there's also been greater value placed on life insurance, so that helped, and that'll help insurers over the long term. But we should point out that many insurance products require a person. They're complex, and they're like things like variable annuities or high-end estate planning life insurance in the U.S. and Canada. Or uh, in Asian markets like Korea or Japan, face-to-face selling is, is really important. And so is prospecting, and that's difficult too under a pandemic. Um, if you're an agent, you can try to video conference with existing clients, but it's difficult to find new prospects online alone. So all these factors contributed to lower sales, um, particularly in the second quarter of 2020. We expect sales to be depressed for the remainder of 2020 um, and probably beyond given that even though we're going back to offices uh, you know, on a rolling basis, high unemployment and low interest rates um, will, will weigh on sales.
2: But what about underwriting? Because traditionally life insurance policies have involved um, a few steps that need to be done in person like uh, medical exams and things.
3: That's right. Um, a typical full-blown underwriting cycle can take 30 to 45 days and part of the problem is the medical exam. But, you know, with global shutdowns, insurers didn't have the opportunity to send people to paramedics or to the doctor. And so they uh, had to rely on medical and other information that they can get solely online. Automated underwriting, this is what they call it. It, It's not new, companies have been using it increasingly um, over the past few years, but it really picked up urgency during the pandemic. And, and so did other electronic processes like electronic signatures, um, which gained uh, greater acceptance among policyholders uh, during the pandemic. In places like China, signatures have been entirely replaced by biometrics, like a, a face scan or a digital imprint, and that can really speed up, uh, you know, a life insurance sales process but it wouldn't work everywhere. Um, There are privacy concerns, and so Europe and and North America wouldn't uh, wouldn't necessarily accept that, uh, at least as as these processes currently stand. Overall, insurers told us that uh, the pandemic has really driven home the need to accelerate their technology investments in these and other processes, online processes. And, And their end game is to have you know, uh, an end-to-end system, uh, technological system that allows people to buy insurance however they choose, whether it be all online or with an agent or a little bit of both. They're aiming at making the process, you know, more simple and more efficient and, you know, getting policies to policyholders in days and not weeks or months.
2: Yeah, so it sounds like it's going to require a lot more investment to get that to that sort of future that they're envisaging. Uh, Danielle, I know you have a question around this, right?
1: Yeah, thanks, Carolyn i had been wondering, Laura, if you had any sense, based on the survey, whether there will be clear winners and losers in the race to go digital among life insurers.
3: Yes, Danielle, there will be. Um, Life insurance products are are still really complex, and they're typically sold and not bought. And company after company told us that the pandemic um, has accelerated the need to change this. So, we think the winners will be those companies that use technology to make their products less complex and to make the buying process faster and easier. And that's even if it means allowing in disruptors like tech companies that can, you know, that come up with a hybrid robo-human distribution uh, model. Some companies in North America have already purchased some of these tech companies to help them. And we think that these companies, you know, that the most tech-savvy companies will end up um, attracting top Distributors and more policyholders and, and, and keep their employees better. But not every company will clearly have the um, resources or the ability to do this. And over time they could um, they could become acquisition targets themselves. Now, while we don't expect rating changes due to technology in and of itself, uh, in the long run, it is likely that those companies that are rigid and can't evolve their business models and make the necessary investments will probably lose some of their relevance with policyholders and distributors. And over time, this may result in weaker credit profiles.
1: Right. Laura and Carolyn, thank you both very, very much for your insights. And thank you very much to our listeners for tuning in. Please join us again in two weeks' time on September 23rd for the next episode of Moody's Talks, Focus on Finance.